This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And this is a film podcast. Just want to let everybody know. How's it going? <laughs> it's going all right. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's going all right. I'm worried about I'm worried about how much I laugh when I talk to people. What? I don't know. I just ever since we started this podcast, I've been so I've spent more time this year listening to my own my own voice than I have in my entire life. No kidding. For all the 43 years leading up to this combined. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I feel like I just, I laugh a lot because I find a lot of things funny and humorous. But I don't know, we're, 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 we're making this podcast circuit and I just feel like I'm too giggly. Absolutely not. I mean, first of all, people love your laugh. We get fan mail about your laugh. So... It's never a problem. It's not a problem for me either because I, I like because it usually means if you're laughing, then I'm being funny or something we're doing is funny. And that is <laughs> tons of validation that I love. But I understand. I understand what you mean, because, yes, it is. It is a lot doing a weekly podcast and having to edit yourself you know, multiple times a week sometimes is very hard. Um, and there's like all these little things that I have found about myself that I'm like, why do I say that? Why do I do that? (laughs) I joke around. We joked around the other week about how I say thought experiment a lot. And and then another friend of mine pointed out to me that I say simply. I simply (laughs) say simply too much. So I know what you mean. See, there I go. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I don't want you to think that. Um, But, you know. Is it because we've been doing a lot of other people's podcasts lately and now we're comparing ourselves? I think so. I think it's like, oh, man, I am a giggly and I'm an inappropriate laugher. I know that about myself. Like you've been to the movies with me. I laugh all the way. I I laugh when people get murked. Like I just it's it's bad. It's awesome, though. That's what we were talking (laughs) on. um, We recorded an episode of Lady to Lady and I told the story about how this is like the origin of our fine romance. But basically I I was talking about how I knew I wanted to do a film podcast with you because when we would go to the movies that you were the only other person who laughed when I laughed. And it was usually when nobody else in the movie theater was laughing. And so it was just like the two of us (laughs) laughing at this probably inappropriate or just like weird thing that no one picked up on, but us. And I just felt that I felt that kinship with you. And I was like, Oh my God, we, we simply must do this podcast. (laughs) Um, so I, I, I think that's great, and, but I understand, I, again, I understand your thoughts, but I want to say that I, I think it's lovely that you laugh Aww, inappropriately thanks. at thanks. death sometimes. I really do. There's nothing I'm, you know me, like I raised on horror because of my grandma's, my grandma's inappropriateness. Sure. I don't like gore. 
I'm not a fan of gory horror, but I love psychological horror and I love I love unexpected things in horror films and shows. So there's I actually have a video. We could post it if you want. But um, I have a video of me. I was watching Hannibal and I I just around the scene like four times. It made me laugh so hard. And it's the scene where uh, they're in a parking garage and it's quiet. And then out of nowhere comes this wheelchair with a body in it on fire. And it just like I'm screaming through the parking garage. <laughs> it makes me laugh every time I see it. I don't know why, but that's the kind of stuff I laugh at that I feel like, well, that's inappropriate. Like there's a body on fire being wheeled through a garage, but I can't help it. It makes me laugh. Listen, sometimes like our stress responses set off like the weirdest stuff because I'm that I'm that way too. I think my first instinct whenever something weird is happening is that I laugh because I just am kind of caught off guard by something, whether it is like a wheelchair on fire or like, I remember this one time when I was, um, I might actually talk about an, an accident that I had when I was in my twenties. <laughs> I might talk about that later in the episode, but there was this other accident that was in a, like when I was in high school where I was in a car with one of my friends. Uh, her name was Danielle too. And we got, um, into this like fender bender with this family. And it was like, I just remember it was, it was right outside of a Kmart. I don't know why I remember that, but, um, my friend Danielle just like rear ended somebody and we get out of the car and the family in front of us were eating noodles from a Chinese restaurant, I guess while they were driving and there was noodles all over the car, like the windshield and the dashboard. And for whatever reason, I was laughing hysterically. And I swear, I think it was because I had literally just got into an accident. And then I was like, I don't know what to do. My body's going into some kind of stress response. And now I'm just laughing about all this like low main. That's literally, it was all over the place. It looked like somebody had just like barfed it all over their car. Um, and uh, everybody was fine. Thank God there was no injuries, but I, I laughed about, and I think like people thought I was high because I was like on the side of the road waiting for, for the police to show up and crying, like tears pouring down my face. Um, oh my, from laughter, from laughter. And I think it was just because I was in such, and then later on, I actually cried, cried, uh, like when, my, when they called my mom, cause I was like um, 15 and I needed a ride home from the accident. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, can you come get your daughter? She's high and has been in an accident. <laughs> and you're like, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just in shock. I know. I'm just. I've just been in a car accident, and I don't know what to do. Uh, so I'm just laughing. But I. Um. I don't know. I, gotta, I feel like that's a common reaction. I think. I think you're right. You know how, like, in movies, um, there's that like. And this has happened in a lot of movies where basically somebody starts out laughing and then they end up crying hysterically. Yeah. That's me. I swear to God. Like, I've done it several times. So I, I, I find the sorrow later. I get there. But initially I'm cracking up because I'm like, I don't know how to process real things. And the absurdity. The absurdity of it is is part of it. It's absurdity. Exactly. Yeah. I also, I think part of the, um, just going back to something you said earlier, I think that and I know I've referenced this in the podcast that we were on recently. It's probably Lady to Lady. I'm exactly right. You should listen. They're great. Um, We also went to the movies. There was about a week straight where we went and saw two or three movies and we cried at every one of them. Yes. And I was like, 
oh, this is dope. Like we could have real human emotions in a movie theater and we would cry and then we would get out of the, the movie and be like, what was that all about? <laughs> and I yes. remember specifically that one of them was Wrinkle in Time. Yes, which we saw at the Grove. And I remember yeah. we were, it was packed. I think it was probably the weekend that it came out and we were both like sobbing. <laughs> and then I remember, do you remember the guy in back? That was the guy. <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy in back of us and when oprah first comes on the screen it was dead silent and then all of a sudden from behind us you hear yes oprah yes <laughs> <laughs> there is no other reaction really if you think about it <laughs> i mean truly it made me laugh so hard oh my god yeah that movie healing but I, I like you know i am i'm in a motor i emote <laughs> and laughter is just the one that I go to most of the time. Yeah. Honestly, though, I'm not going to lie. I fucking love crying in movies in the movie theater. And yeah. I love it. I love it. I feel I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm like I'm in public. I'm having a mm -hmm. moment. It's dark. It's that illusion of like you're, you know, in the movies, you always think that you're by yourself. You're in the dark. No one can really see you. Um, but I'm also aware that it's a public arena so it's that like weird juxtaposition where i'm like oh i'm going for it i don't know why i think i'm in a safe space i know that i'm not so let me just fucking go full on um the best is when i'm by myself and i and i'm just bawling my eyes out like and, yeah. and i because maybe in the back of my mind i'm thinking i want people to be like that woman was fucking losing her shit in there and maybe something's wrong with her you know i don't know should we call someone what was the last movie where you cried? Do you remember? Oh, the last movie where I cried? Yeah, in the theater. Oh, in the theater, because I was about to say, I cried at your movie like two hours ago. Um, <laughs> in the theater? God. Well, you know, my last movie that I saw in the theater was Cats, so it wasn't that. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, to be honest. Like, I, I, I definitely know... I mean, this was a couple years ago, but I definitely know that one of the movies that you and I saw together that we cried at was at Astra. Um, oh, yeah. And so and I definitely remember we both were like wiping tears away for that one. But God, before that, I would have to like, wow. Or do you even remember um, a movie where you were in by yourself in a theater and just cried? Like what, what's a memorable crying moment for you in a theater? I mean, this, I hate to say that this is a Brad Pitt thing, but I saw, I think it was when I saw Tree of Life, which is that oh, Terrence yeah. Malick movie. Yeah. I know I was by myself. I don't know what was going on with me that day, but I was bawling. I was bawling <laughs> alone. And I felt, I felt like I had just gone into therapy. I was, I was Aww. like exhausted. I feel you. I feel like there was, I remember when I went and saw Les Mis when it came out at Christmas time and I went and saw it. And I love Les Mis. I love the book. I love the musical. And I was ready to love the movie. And that part where, you know, you've got a little eponine and you got your whole thing going on. And then Anne Hathaway starts to sing. And I'm like, all right, here it comes. Like Patti Lapone on the soundtrack. Like I always cry. Not a tear. Not a tear. So there's a woman. And I bought, I was prepared. I brought tissues. I had like napkins from the popcorn stand. I was ready. Yeah. The woman next to me was breaking down as if it was her on the screen, getting her head shaved and getting her teeth pulled out and doing the whole thing. She was busting out. And I, I just kind of like quietly reached out of my lap and handed her a tissue. 
Aww. And then I quietly reached out. He did it like four times. Damn, that's so like nice. Just four times, just quietly handing her tissues. Just, hey, we're in this together, kind of. But this is, I, but I, it was crazy. It was totally insane because I was handing her tissues, recognizing her pain. But inside, I was furious that I wasn't crying. I was so mad. <laughs> I'm like, I love crying at this scene. Why am I not crying right now? And she's getting all my tissues. It was, it was a real emotional roller coaster. Yeah, the one like there's a movie like I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like movies that I know I I mean besides Untamed Heart I, I always cry at Untamed Heart. <laughs> um, um, but the the um, the 1939 Wuthering Heights with Merle Oberon and um, Lawrence Olivier that part at the end where he's you know Kathy's like. I mean, do I need to? I'm spoiling Wuthering Heights, everyone. Just wanted to let you know. So Kathy is passed, and like um, Heathcliff is, you know, basically like at her bedside, and he's like doing his whole speech about how he wants her to haunt him. Dude, Ugh. I can't. It's like I'm getting teared up just talking about it. But you like, are. I, I swear to God, like I. That is instant movie crying, like instant for me. <laughs> I want you to haunt me. <laughs> also, can we just pour one out for Miss Haversham? Yeah. I love Miss. Ha- I love a Miss Haversham type. Pour one like, out. <laughs> pour one out for Miss Haversham. Look, she's holding on to a feeling. She's holding on to an idea. It is bleak. It is tragic. But she's stuck with it to the bitter. And <laughs> poor one out. <laughs> oh my god! I think we have our episode title. Pour one out for Miss Haversham. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. Also, it's it's have this sham, but I always say it is Haversham because I uh, just do, and you I don't do have too. to correct me. I know, I know it's Haversham. I know it is. It's just the way I talk. I don't have any kind of localized accent for some reason. <laughs> The New York comes out of me with that word. Have a sham. I was saying have a sham very deliberately for 40 something years. And I this is all fucking news to me, dog. Seriously. So don't feel Pour bad. Pour one out. Pour, Pour one out for that out. motherfucker. That's all I'm saying. Have ish. Have her. You know what I mean? Either way. We're pouring one Pour out. Pour one out for a woman with a dream. We're pouring two out. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> forward out for each name. Oh my goodness! Yeah, but um, yeah, I love crying in movies. I can't wait to get back to it. I don't know when though, because I'm like, um, yeah, for whatever reason, movies still feel a little like TBD for me. Like I'm like, oh yeah. okay, like everyone's starting to go back. Like I just saw that the new Beverly, another place in LA that <gasps> we fucking love, uh, yeah. is reopening in June. So that's ah. very exciting. But it's that thing where I'm like. Yeah, up until that point, I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking about the movies. I don't know what it will take to get me back in a theater. Like, I don't know at this point. As much as I love going and it was such a crucial part of my life, I don't know what particular film will make me say, yeah, it's time. Dude. Because all I'm thinking about is germs and breathing and just viscera. Like, ugh. What if it was John Wick 4? Oh, okay. Yeah. What if it was a private screening for you? And me, duh, with Keanu for John Wick 4. You would definitely go back. Oh, naturally. I I would go back. I would go. I would run back. I'd camp out. I'd sleep there for that. (laughs) I'd lick the floor for that. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So John Wick 4 will probably come out one day. And I will. Because they were filming it before before the pandemic. Oh, they were? 
I think so. Or maybe they just announced it before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but John Wick 4 will come out and that's when I will go back to the movies, I believe. It's so good. It's too good. I think it's 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 going to be a real a real cathartic moment to go back to the theater for for Jonathan Wick. We love Jonathan Wick. If there was a sponge to be thrown at a screen, <laughs> it would be for bring- for us. It would be Jonathan. We should bring a bag of sponges <laughs> to our private viewing of Jonathan Wick. We could pick them up at the end, but we're bringing sponges. Yeah, we need those sponges, but it's like, yeah, we should definitely do it. Keanu's going to be like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm into it because I'm a very genial and kind man and just want you to get your get your kicks however you can, ladies. Throw some sponges. Keanu will be out back in the movie theater smoking a cigarette and he'll be like, <laughs> heard you guys are doing a sponge thing. But you remember, you remember at the Arclight when we went and saw Jonathan Wick 3, he did come to a viewing of that movie at the Arclight. Because when I was getting popcorn and, you know, talking to the person behind the, the counter, they were like, oh, what are you seeing? I said, John Wick. And they said, oh, you know, Keanu was here like two days ago. And he saw it in the theater with people. He just like went kind of slipped in and sat in the back. Damn. It's possible, yo. It's possible. Yo, we get we picked the wrong movie times. Why don't we get the Keanu fest? I know. Damn. He's got to get on our level. We're too erratic with our movie time, so he's got to get on our level. That is true. Speaking of movies, mm-hmm. do you want to get into ours? Sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our theme this week is quite a doozy. So last week we did this episode, a recurring one is called Changing Female Friendships. We talked about two films uh, that dealt with, um, you know, women who are friends and go through the kind of situations that friends go through. And so for this episode, we thought, what if we decided to talk about male friends? Right? Groups of men (laughs) who are friends. Right. Um, That's it, right? (laughs) And we have called it... It was a secret. Yes, because here's the thing. This episode is about male friendship or groups of men. But it's also about something going on. Like they've got some kind of secret. They've got some kind of situation that they're all dealing with as a group and they're trying to process their feelings about it. Right. Mm. Men, men and boys, men and boys, men and boys, tiny men, tiny men, as they're also referred tiny to tiny men and, and then boy, um, tiny men <laughs> and then men, boys to men. Um, uh, oh, if we could do a boys to men theme. We can't do that. Do the boys to men act? Do any of them act the four? Dun, 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 da, da. Is there a lead singer of Boys to Men? Jeez. No, there are, there's no lead. There's only a lead of your heart in Boys to Men, the group. Like, which one do you gravitate towards? But if they don't act, let's let's have them act. Yes. I'll write something. And then we will have 
I'll be like, look, you have to do at least two movies because we need a boys to men theme. (laughs) And they'll say, ma'am, we have retired on our Scrooge McDuck piles of money for singing about sadness for two decades straight. (laughs) We simply do not want to do a movie simply because you have a film podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks and goodbye. But yes, this theme is about groups of men, boys, males. And um, the secrets that they keep together, the secrets that they keep from each other, the secrets that they tell each other. So I just want to up top kind of give a little bit of a warning for anybody who is going to be listening beyond this point that I will be talking about rape and sexual violence. So um, if this is something that you're not interested in in hearing about, then uh, please skip. I promise we will not be offended. But yeah, I'm going to be doing that right now. So my film uh, this week for the theme, It Was a Secret, is a movie from 1972. It was directed by John Borman, and it's called Deliverance. Where are you going, city boy? We'll find it. It ain't nothing but the biggest river in the state. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. So this movie was based on the book Deliverance that was written by the poet laureate James Dickey in 1970. And uh, James Dickey was born in Atlanta, where I'm from. He went to high school in Buckhead for all of you Atlians, (laughs) Atlians out there. (laughs) He was, you know, obviously a poet, a professor, and he was just kind of like a real, you know, tried and true kind of Southern guy from what I've read about him. Um, He had this like kind of big personality and he spoke his mind often. He did some drinking. He wrote the screenplay for the film. And initially he was very involved with the Mm. filming of it. Um, From what I understand, he was on set like every day And he was very opinionated about what was going on on set. From what I understand, he was calling the actors in the film by their character names, like even offset. So when they were like hang out after filming, um, he was calling them by their character names, which I think was not something that they wanted. And um, (laughs) he was like forcing them into method acting. He's like, my name's Bert. No, it's not. Lewis. (laughs) Lewis. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Bert, uh, Bert Reynolds, the, I don't know the exact quote, but he was basically like, I'm Lewis from like, you know, 5 a.m. to 7 um, <laughs> tomorrow, but not here, not at the bar or whatever. <laughs> James Dickey uh, was drinking a lot uh, when they were filming this movie. And the legend has it that he came to set one day and he got into an actual fist fight <gasps> with the director, John Borman. When he had heard that John Borman was kind of changing the script around a little bit. And apparently it was like a real actual fight where John Borman like lost a few teeth. It's it's quite a legend, I have to say. Um, (laughs) But you'll love this part. Essentially, the lead actors in the movie got together and were basically like, we got to talk to this guy. We got to kick him off the set. Um, And they did. And so that was like a very tense moment for the filming, which, by the way, this is one of those movies that has like a legendary production history. Like it's like one of those movies where like people were fighting on set and like it was being filmed in a very like um, 
a very rough terrain. And so there's a lot of stories out there about the filming of Deliverance, which I think is very fascinating. But um, but they figured it out because James Dickey actually does have a cameo at the end of the film. He plays <laughs> the sheriff. So, you know, they figured it out. And that's great. But when this movie came out, it was a complete smash. Like it made yeah. a ton of money. It was nominated for a ton of Academy Awards. And James Dickey became very famous, as Mm. did Georgia, by the way, where this movie was filmed. Basically, after Deliverance came out, everybody started flocking to North Georgia. Like people were like wanting to go to the woods of North Georgia. They got obsessed with like bluegrass music. Like that dueling banjo song was like on the charts and stuff. And like, wait, I'm sorry. Did they watch the movie? Because nothing about this film to me said postcard for vacation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the funny thing, and this is even more bizarre, is that there was actually like an uptick in canoe rentals. What? I mean, it's wild, right? I mean, it's kind of like it, it was one of those crucial moment flashpoint type of movies, I guess. Yeah. Um. So I will say that this story does take place where I am from, which is Georgia. Um, it, obviously, you don't, you, you might have known that from listening to this podcast, but um, I am from Georgia. I, I lived there pretty much my entire life until about five years ago. And they filmed this movie in Rabin County in North Georgia, which is basically like this upper, it's like the very upper northeast corner, kind of where Georgia meets with North Carolina and South Carolina. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's great. Um, They filmed a lot of it at Tallulah Gorge, which um, I've been to many, many times. Um, It's like a great place to go hiking and camping and swimming if you like to go swimming in rivers and whatnot. And I know at this point, especially there are a lot of movies that are filmed in Georgia and that are about Georgia that take place in Georgia. But I would argue that Deliverance is maybe the most famous and the most notorious, which I think I'll get into in just a second. But to give you um, a rundown of the story, this film is about four adult male friends from Atlanta that travel up to North Georgia to canoe down this remote river before the river is dammed. By the local utilities company, because I guess they want to do some kind of they want to do hydroelectric power or something like that. And the four of these guys, they're real city wise people. They they have white collar jobs and wives and families. And they just want to have this like real rugged men's trip. And it's kind of being headed up by Lewis, who is the character that's played by Burt Reynolds. And he's definitely the most sort of outdoorsy alpha male of the four, mm. right? Like he he's kind of like a sportsman meets survivalist type, right? Yeah. And he he's the one, he's the outfit I want to talk about. He's the look. <laughs> Cause let me tell you. Let's. This might be, and Burt Reynolds has a history of wild looks, if you <laughs> check out his career. He certainly does. Through the ages. This look, I contend, is his wildest. We're talking about high water pants, a comb forward, not a comb over, a comb forward, middle of the head, let's create some bangs, bowl cut it, and a rubber vest. This man, how is this not something that we're wearing to this day? It is a survivalist uniform, but it is also pure style. With a tough cuff. He's a giant cuff, right? Giant cuff. He's got a tough cuff. 
He's got some some high water showing the whole boot. It is a wild look. It took me off guard right away. I was like, wow, this I cannot believe this is not the center of the conversation about this film. It, it seems very sexy for like to me. And, 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 and again, I don't know the function of a rubber vest because yeah, here's no the one thing. Does. It's not. I thought at first when I first saw this movie, I was like, why is he wearing that rubber vest? Is it because of. Um, it's a life vest. No, he puts mm. on a life vest when he gets into the water. This is just a rubber vest that's literally like zipped down to like male cleavage area. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, well, then what's the like f- function of this? Like, what- there's no function. It's it's a look. He was serving looks on a river. Thank you. Serving hot looks. on, And you know what? So is Ed, the John Voight character, because there's a scene in the in the canoe when he's leaning back and sipping a beer. The zipper of his jumpsuit goes under his balls, <laughs> which just seems like a real fashion, like a real dangerous, adventurous move there to be like, I don't know, buddy. Let's see if you can do it without catching skin. Let's do it under the balls. <laughs> this is like I would love to to really hear like a three hour take on the fashion of deliverance. I feel like that's a big, it's something that I would love. And maybe there is somebody that has written about it, but man. Oh, I'm going to give it to you right now. That's what this podcast is now. (laughs) It's it's all about like, does a a rubber vest zipped to show chest hair have a, a function in the outdoorsy sense? Can I go to REI and get one of these right now? Yeah. And wear it alone, because, again, we're on a hot river. So, you know, there's some sweat. It's not not even practical for the experience. Yes, I I was very I was I've been beguiled by this outfit for years. It's a rubber vest with a collar, by the way, a popped (laughs) collar. Oh, my God. I love Burt Reynolds so much. I don't know if that was his choice, but if it was, God bless you, sir. Um, So here's the thing about Lewis, right? He's definitely the type of guy that's probably been at a Bass Pro Shop or two in his life, right? He's real hell-bent on riding down this river. Because in his mind, he feels like the man is coming to ruin the natural environment. And he makes multiple speeches about it. And he makes it, he makes a big speech about it at the beginning of the movie as the opening credits are going. Okay? So that's Lewis. Okay? Then you've got Ed, who, like Danielle said, is played by John Voight. Uh, he's kind of like second fiddle to Lewis. You can actually tell he's kind of in awe of Lewis because mm-hmm. Ed is not the super macho type at all. You know, he's got his mustache and his pipe and his little bucket hat. He's kind of like, yeah, he's, I think, kind of the second fiddle to Lewis in the sense that, um, you know, Ed is the type of guy who owns a crossbow and a knife. He owns it, but he still like has trouble with the idea of like killing a deer when he's got mm. the shot. You know, he's not yeah. he's not the aggro alpha male that Lewis is. Then you have Bobby, who is played by Ned Beatty. He's more or less the joker of the group. He's got a big personality. He's always making people laugh. And then you have Drew, who is played by Ronnie Cox. And I would say that Drew is probably the most sensitive out of the four. I yeah. mean, he wears glasses. Dead dead giveaway, sensitive guy. <laughs> glasses and a guitar. Aww. Yes, he carries a guitar everywhere he goes. And he's the one that gets into the famous banjo duel with the little boy mm. at the beginning of the film. So that's the four guys in the, in the friend group. They're obviously like um, 
kind of character types and they kind of all have a different personality that functions within this kind of quad right yeah so the one thing that you're told like right off the bat in this movie is that these guys are in the country and they are totally out of their element right they pull up to the town which is nearest to the river that they're going to and lewis you know basically he wants to pay a few of the locals to drive their cars down the river to the place where they're going to be exiting out of the river um you know in a couple days or whatever their trip's over and, and this, I'm just going to stop you there for a second, because this is interesting to me. You have two cars. And I know that this movie wouldn't exist if they did this. But in my mind, you all drive to the spot where you want your cars to be at the end. Take two people, pile them in the truck, drive back to the town where you're going to you know, cast off or kick off. Then you go get your car. You're, you you know, you float down, you do your thing for a couple of days, your car's there, you drive it back to the spot where you got the first car. Like they could have they could have tandemed it. It would be a lot more driving and a lot more gas, yeah. granted. But when the people that you're hiring to drive your cars or paying to drive your cars to where you want them to be have bullet holes throughout their windows and trucks. Yes. I would just come up with another plan. That's all I'm saying. You know, I think my take on that is that that it sort of adds to the theory that these guys are from the big city and they kind of see these people as real simple country folk they don't want to do the work right they don't want to Mm -hmm. they want somebody to drive their car they want to pay them less than what the they offer um to do it and that's the thing about the people who are in this town right off the bat you know it's the, it's the Southern stereotypes. The, the locals are very poor. They got deep Southern accents. They seem like disheveled and dirty. They're missing teeth. There is um, a notion that they're likely participating in some kind of inbreeding, perhaps. And the four guys are basically they show up and they're just like, hey, what a bunch of idiots. Like, let's, you know, let's get them to drive our cars down there, whatever. And like, you know, what's up with this and this and that. They're kind of making fun of them a little bit, like depending on the guy, like, you know, obviously Bobby kind of has the most to say because he's trying to be funny and stuff. And then Lewis just kind of just orders people around. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, But Drew is really the only one of them that attempts to actually connect with with any of them and that he plays guitar with the little boy with the banjo. But beyond that, no one's really, you know, thinking about how to make meaningful connections with these uh, locals. Yeah. Or even just be nice to them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's fair. That's established up front is that basically like these are city guys and, you know, they kind of come from uh, they're kind of coming into the scenario with an arrogance, which I think maybe explains why they are not driving their own cars to the spot. I don't understand. That's true. That's very true. They're like, what? Drive it twice? No. Let's just simply underpay a poor person to do it. Um, So they load up and they head to the river. And, you know, at first it's all fun and games, as you can imagine. Uh, They hit the rapids pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, it should be known that these actors basically did their own stunts in this movie. And it was pretty much a money saving tactic. Oh, no. Did they know they were going to do it or they're just like, we're on the river today, guys. See ya. (laughs) No, I think it was because they didn't want to get insurance for the film. And so they're like, these guys will do their own stunts. (gasps) And I don't know um, all the ins and outs of this, um, but I just know that they like 
they did their own stunts and they were definitely in the river. Like they are in the canoes, they're in the rapids. And what they're saying while they're um, traversing these rapids is actual and factual. Like they are doing it. And I, I, just as a side note, um, here's where I'm going to talk about my second accident of the episode. So <laughs> this part of the movie and, and like all these rapid scenes, honestly, like, Oh my God, they made me so, so nervous. Um, Cause I was in, the, I was actually in a small canoeing accident when I was in my twenties. Yes. Yes. I was in Helen, Georgia, which is not too far from the gorge. Okay. And I, it was my friend's birthday and it was me and my two girlfriends. And we were like, let's go kayaking and canoeing. We've never done it before. Let's just go up for a day and do it. Right. Look, I appreciate the chutzpah, the chutzpah of that so much. <laughs> Well, what they don't tell you is that when you go to some of these places in the woods or like wherever you're at, it doesn't matter. Um, essentially, there are entire businesses that are run by teenagers and they just give you a, a, a form that says you can't sue us if you die. And that's all they do. <laughs> no instructions. No, they don't tell you how to do anything. They're like, oh, you don't know how to paddle or anything or like they don't care. It's literally like there's the paddles. There's the life vests and canoes. Have fun. That's it. So we we went down the river in Helen and um, we didn't know what we were doing. And I was in a canoe with a friend of mine and we flipped over um, after hitting this like giant tree stump that had like <gasps> kind of fallen in the river. And there was like this little passageway that you're supposed to like shimmy around the, the tree stump and get through. And, you know, it's all moving. Not, not terribly fast, but fast enough. Um, to where it was terrifying but um, basically we flipped over I fell into the river and um, it was kind of a deeper part of the river and the straps of my life vests were caught on the roots <gasps> underneath the water and I was basically drowning um, oh my really yeah and I um and I had to unbuckle my life vest so I could like swim to shore essentially that is terrifying yeah so were you like laughing as you surface and then you cried for seven (laughs) hours later (laughs) yeah i think that i i was laughing i think i laughed because i was like what am i doing and then i i was crying and then i actually called my friend who was a doctor he was in middle medical school at the time to find out if i had to like you know i swallowed a bunch of river water and i was afraid (laughs) i had some kind of like protozoa in my belly. <laughs> do I do I got the Zoa or not? Yeah. But honestly, like when I watch, especially the first one, like the first yeah. um, rapid scene in the movie that it, it takes place not too far into the movie, I could feel my chest tighten. Like I was literally oh. like, oh my God, I'm having a panic attack. Um, <gasps> but hey, exposure therapy. There we go. That is terrifying. Yeah. But um. So back to this movie, (laughs) Um, eventually the two canoes, they're going down the river and then they split off. So um, John Voight and Ned Beatty, Ed and Bobby, they are on their own and they stop along the bank and they encounter uh, these two local men that are in the woods. And one of them is carrying a shotgun and they get into a verbal argument. And um just to kind of warn you about what i'm about to talk about i am going to be talking about sexual violence and rape so just please fast forward or turn this off now but essentially they get after the argument the two local men tie ed to a tree and they cut his chest with his own knife and they rape bobby 
and they're yelling at him to squeal like a pig. And um, it's very harrowing. It's very, very, very hard to watch, obviously. And um, so then after they are about to force Ed to perform oral sex on the other man, when Lewis suddenly appears from behind, because um, I guess he saw their boat down on the on the bank and he came up. And, and so Lewis appears from behind and shoots the man who raped Bobby with an arrow from his bow. Uh, and then the other man with the gun runs off. This is this is my first time watching this film, but I have heard the cultural references from this film for most of my life. I mean, it's I've heard the squeal like a pig. I've heard you got a real pretty mouth, all of that. I cannot believe people were able to make jokes about this scene. Yeah. Like it is truly awful. Yeah. And I I was I was just shocked. I was shocked by what I was seeing. I was shocked by the scene itself. But then thinking about like how I've heard of it all these years, I'm like how are people able to joke? That just shows you where how far we've come as a culture, maybe, um, or how far we had to co- how far we had to go. Um, but I couldn't believe that the way that I I've, I've heard of this film was in such a comical context when what's happening is terrible. I will get into that in just a second because I do think that there is this weird disconnect between what this movie is actually and what the culture kind of made it. Yeah. Yeah. There, I think that's very common because I myself had heard all of the jokes before I saw the movie. I mean, honestly, like who hasn't made that joke while they were like in the middle of the woods somewhere and they, they were Mm -hmm. kind of, they felt something ominous happen and then they, they made the banjo notes or whatever. Um, Everyone has these references from this film but then you, when you watch it, you're like, holy shit, really? Like, God, yeah. that is so, so not what I expected. And yeah, it's way more hardcore than anybody had ever set me up for, you know? And it also, it's, what's strange, too, is that um, I think it takes away from, this is a very powerful movie. Yes. It's a very powerful movie. And I think that to joke about it in that way not only takes away the agency of men who experience sexual violence, but which, again, thankfully, culturally, we're starting to talk about. But I think it also just puts it puts the 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 strain and the real hardship that these guys are going through in the film. Um, it takes away all of that power from that scene as well. I mean, I think that because what really what really floored me is that this scene happens pretty early on in the film. Yeah. And it keeps going and it does not get better. Like, this is not the worst thing that happens in this film. Yeah. And nobody talks about the rest of that. Like, the you know, I, I just yeah, I know we're going to bring up some other points about it, but that was just something that that hit me. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I have I have obviously a lot of thoughts about it. Um, and in the film, after Lewis shows up and kills the man, they the four men are in complete shock and they get into this very intense argument on whether or not they want to bring this matter to the police or just bury the dead man in the ground and not tell anybody. And that scene is very interesting to me as well, because it goes back to what you were saying about sort of the attitudes towards males and sexual violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that there is a, a a big problem for Ned Beatty's character where he is very ashamed about what happened and he doesn't want to tell anybody. He doesn't want to report it, you know, and um, and I also think, too, that they're concerned that 
the uh, the location that they're in is they're not going to get a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just a lot going on in this scene, and uh, and it's it's long and and it's very emotional and um you know, but it's also just interesting to watch people sort of it's a, it's a, it's interesting to watch these characters talk it out as friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? And everybody but Drew decides to bury the body. Okay. So when they get back into the river, they pretty much almost immediately encounter these like very huge rapids again. And suddenly Drew falls out of the boat and he's into the sink. And, um, and it's for some reason that none of us know, like the viewer doesn't really know what happened. And so from there, all hell pretty much breaks loose yeah, for the most part. I mean, basically both of the canoes crash into the rocks. Everyone is set down the rapids where Lewis breaks his leg on the rocks. And it is truly upsetting. It is gnarly. It is so gnarly. One of the boats cracks, the wooden canoe cracks. Everything. And they're like completely battered by the rocks. And Drew's body is Nowhere to be found. Like, no one knows where he is. And essentially now they are stranded on this river in the middle of nowhere um, that's in a gorge, right? So they're down within a hundred feet maybe or more in between the rocks. And the man with the gun is run off. They're very interested in knowing where he is or like what's going on there because they also believe that he might have shot Drew from above. And this is the man that was in the sexual assault scene that ran away. Um, yes. And they're all in like extreme survival mode. And they um, they just know that something bad has really happened and they don't want to tell anybody that it's happened. Yeah. And so they're trying to figure it out as the movies um, goes on. And it's just like you said before, I, to me, this movie is um, so thought provoking on so many levels. And I do think that over the years it has turned into a joke. And I don't and I. There's such a disconnect there, and I'm. It's yeah. very puzzling to me. There's not a lot in this film that I find like funny on yes. the surface. Yeah, and um, and again, I think it's a powerful movie. I think that it is an interesting movie. I think that it is um a movie that has a lot to say about masculinity and toxic masculinity and surviving and. It has more to say than just the jokes it's been reduced to. Yeah, and like like. Let's put this into a historical context, because, again, early 70s, it's like that era that we talked about in that Ice Storm episode where um, you've got the sexual revolution, Vietnam, women's liberation all happening at the same time. And it feels related to what the big themes are in this movie, which is that they're they're talking about traditional masculinity changing Mm -hmm. rape and sexual violence, people versus nature. These are all things that are kind of like in in the conversation at this time in history, right? Um, We're talking about like a group of men, one of whom is a guy like Lewis. He's the alpha. Uh, Then there's somebody like Drew, who is the only one that wants to quote unquote, do the right thing. And like, you know, those two types of men are being examined right now in this era. And like I said, the idea of Bobby and sort of what had happened to him, it all feels very tied to, you know, what was going on at the time. And I will say this too, you know, during this time, there was also a big attempt to sort of change the vision of what the South was for many Mm -hmm. years. It had carried a bad image for a very, very long time. 
Atlanta was suddenly the like city that was too busy to hate. We had, you know, Jimmy Carter was the president not long after this film was released. So when when this film came out, it actually pissed off quite a few people in the South because it seemed to be perpetuating these kind of like rural, white, poor, you know, Southern stereotypes. Um, And because it became that punchline about Southern people. Yeah. Right. It became like a punchline about many different things, but especially about the South and about being in the country. And um, but what I think is interesting, and again, this is something that doesn't get brought up in the jokes, obviously, is that the city guys are not any better. Right. Like they come in with their own cocky attitudes about these people that live in this part of the world. And it's the movie is it's very ambiguous about who you're supposed to be rooting for. Right. And I think that's really interesting. And that's I think part of what I love about this movie is that it's it's it brings up a lot of thoughts for me. It's a very rich text, which I love. Um, And just sort of the history behind it and like the, you know, who was in it and like, you know, obviously with the James Dickey thing and the John Borman thing, you know, to me, it's so fascinating. It's such a fascinating movie. I agree. I'm glad you picked it for this theme um, because I think that the secret I was trying to think about it when I was watching it. I'm like, there's so many secrets going on in this film yes. and beyond just the the the, the initial trauma of uh, what happens with Bobby. And like there are just so many secrets about like, you know, because when Lewis is, when Lewis breaks his leg, he's just like, now you're in the game. And Ed's like, fuck you, dude. Tell me what to do. Like, you're the survivalist guy. Yeah. (laughs) And there's just like, you know, these just these notions and secrets about how they are meant to to live and survive this. So it's it's I loved it. I loved I really loved it. I'm glad I watched it because it's so much deeper than the jokes I've heard about it. Thank you. I'm glad that you think that, because I think that's an everyone's initial reaction to the film of 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 why they won't see it is because they've heard so much about it in um in a in a way that suggests that it might be like funny or campy or something like that or like at mm-hmm. least like made into a joke um but i think it's very dramatic and serious and it's like a very um textured great american film from the 70s it's like a classic in my opinion yeah could not agree more and then john borman made zardoz after so there you go i'm sorry S- something must have happened <laughs> <laughs> sorry don't know what happened there <laughs> what happened is he got punched in the face on <laughs> and he's like how about never again now it's just sean connery's thigh hair forever <laughs> anyway another movie where we could talk about the outfits forever oh my god exactly all right so for my pick for our theme of it was a secret I chose a film that was released in 1986, directed by Rob Reiner, based on a novella by Stephen King, and it is called Stand By Me. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. Oh, man, where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? Um, I want to say off the top, too, that the the screenplay was written by Reynold Gideon and Bruce A. Evans. Um, I did not look up if they did anything else because I was too busy crying over the end of this film. Mm-hmm. I have never cried at this movie before. And this is a film that I saw when it came out. You know, I was, what, like nine when it came out. Um, 
and I'll give you a brief synopsis. I'm going to give you like a one sentence synopsis. Uh, So this is a movie about four boys who go on a two day journey to see if they can locate a dead body. Uh, They heard about this dead body because one of them heard that their older brother is talking about it. Supposedly, it is the body of a 12 year old boy who is around the age of our protagonists. And it's really a story that's more about the journey than the destination. So that's kind of what this movie is about. The movie is, again, made in 1986, but it's set in 1959. Uh, And you have these four primary characters. You have Gordy, who's kind of the storyteller of the group. Uh, Chris is the tough guy of the group. Teddy's kind of the wild guy. And Vern is the teddy bear. And even for child actors, this is a rock star cast. Mm. So Will Wheaton plays Gordy. River Phoenix played Chris. Corey Feldman played Teddy Duchamp. And Jerry O'Connell played Vern. And if you want to talk about the glow up to end all glow ups, look at Jerry O'Connell and Stand By Me and then just Google a picture of him now. (laughs) Vern is so cute. I'm like, come on, people. Are we really like picking on this guy so much like whatever okay i mean i love Vern. i think that it is i think that this should be the rubric by which we now base like all of our friend groups on because we've done sex in the city for a long ass time like are you the charlotte or the miranda are you the gordy or are you the Vern? i'm the Vern. i'm f- fucking Vern. Like, depending on who i'm hanging out with honestly <laughs> i was Vern for a very long time <laughs> and now uh, now i just might be the guy that owns the junkyard who in the back knows <laughs> oh, oh no there are also some other heavy hitters in here uh you've got Kiefer sutherland who plays ace merrill uh he's kind of the town tough and then you also have casey samasco who plays billy he's Vern's older brother that's how they found out about this body they heard billy and his friend uh charlie talking about it on the porch but my favorite older brother might be chris's older brother who just goes by the name Eyeball. (laughs) I don't know why I love that so much, but I love Eyeball as a nickname. Yeah. So good. So good. Um, But what's wild, and this is one of the joys of watching something again as an adult or watching it after a long period of time. I did not remember how much they really dig into the background of all the family stuff for these kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So when they set out, to do, you know, to find this body. They're walking the tracks. They're kind of cutting a path towards where they heard the body could be. And you've got Gordy, um, again, played by Will Wheaton. Gordy is dealing with the aftermath of his brother dying in a car accident, um, his brother Denny. And Denny was like the quarterback all-star kid. And he was also really sweet to Gordy in a way that his father wasn't and that his mother wasn't. Um, so he really had a loss when his brother died. It wasn't just like... This guy I didn't really know too well. Like, they were close. Um, Denny also played by a very young John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Hard to believe that John Cusack was a football star, but you know what? They made oh, it work. They made it work. I mean, he always comes off as, the, like, the sarcastic, you know, older brother, not necessarily a football type, but you know what? Good for them. Can I introduce you to a little movie called Eight Men Out? <laughs> No introduction needed. Um, but yes, that is the he has to have been a sports person in at least a couple films, right? He's not always yeah. the bratty teenager. Um, 
<laughs> it works. It works in small doses. I'm into it. Um, and then you've got Chris's brother, who I'm sure has things going on, but I just have to repeat, his his nickname is Eyeball. So there's something going on there with that guy. <laughs> but Chris is dealing with a lot in terms of who his family is in the town. Yeah. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But he kind of has this view of how people view him that's just heartbreaking. Um, and then you've got Teddy, who uh, his dad has some mental health issues and, um, you know, people pick on him for it. So I didn't re- I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that this movie goes so deep into the background of all this stuff. So they set out for this trip. They make up a story that allows them to be gone for two entire days without their parents freaking out. Hello, 1959. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love I just love little moments of this movie. Like when they first set out for the trip, they do a little inventory. Absolutely nobody brings food because, you know, they're 12 year old boys. Um <laughs> Vern brings a comb and Chris brings a gun. Like, again, in in terms of the friend group, we all have friends like this. Like, which of your friends is bringing a gun to the very chill (laughs) hangout or the the metaphorical gun to the very chill hangout? There's always someone who's like, you're like, we're going to chill out and have some pizza. And if it's four of you or more, everyone's like, all right, I got this. I got the pizza. I got the wine. I bought the acid. And you're like, I'm sorry, (laughs) what? That's Chris Chambers up and down. Exactly. Um, And then you also have this movie has so many classic moments. So we've got this primary secret of the body that they're trying to get to. And they don't even know if it's there. They're going on a whim, which is such a child, a childish um, and kind of like a real childhood dream almost to kind of just be able to follow your whimsy. Uh, So they don't even know what they're going to see or if they're going to see anything. They just take off. They're on it for the journey. So classic moments they're walking the train tracks there is a point where gordy leans down to feel the track because the rumble of the track is what will let him know that there's a train coming Mm -hmm. and there is so they're all running and Vern, who is crawling over this train trestle with a hundred foot drop um Vern is crawling and gordy trying to get him to stand up and run and this isn't just a train. It's like a locomotive. It's got like the big black smokestack and the cow catcher on the front. Yeah. It is scary. I love this scene so much because they're just like, move your ass. Let's go. Let's run. It is just it's so it's just very cute. It's a very cute scene. It's cute or stressful. I get stressed out when I see this. <laughs> I, I'm t- inappropriate laughter. What can I say? <laughs> Kids run out, try to outrun a train. I'm laughing, man. Damn. But it is stressful. It's stressful. Well, I will say just generally, too, I think people see it this way now, too, is that this movie was really dark. For a movie about children, Mm -hmm. they dealt with a lot of sort of like grown up things or it was it was dark. There was scary moments, you know? Yeah. And I mean, would we expect anything less from Stephen King? There you go. I always forget that it was from his, one of his stories. So, yeah, makes sense. And there's there are other incredibly classic moments. Um, the junkyard that Millie probably runs in this scenario. Uh, they're just kind of, you know, they're hanging out before the junkyard opens, just, you know, trying to wait for Gordy to go get some food and come back. And there's a legend of the junkyard dog. And the junkyard dog is called Chopper. Yep. And the legend is that the junkyard owner has taught Chopper to sick balls. <laughs> so when Gordy comes back with the food and he sees this is has to be the most harrowing moment for me. When you come back somewhere from someplace 
and jo- rejoin your group and they have all scrambled over a fence. Totally. Shit's about to go down. <laughs> so they're all standing on the other side of the fence like, come on, run. And he, he sees the dog suddenly. Suddenly it's chopper time. Um, I also it also made me think the scene also made me think of uh, the WWF because do you remember the junkyard dog, the wrestler? Hell yeah. Do you remember that the junkyard dog released a song? No, I don't think I did. Junkyard Dog released a song called Grab Them Cakes. And just do yourself a favor and look it up. I don't I don't I was eight and singing the song. I don't know what the cakes were that he was talking about. I but the Junkyard Dog, it's like when Refrigerator Perry did the Super Bowl shuffle. Oh, like it's too yeah. incongruous in my head. Yeah. Way too incongruous in my head. But yeah, Grab Them Cakes. And he spells it out in the song. Yeah, the G-R-A-B-T-H-E-M-C-A-K-E-S. Grab them cakes. Whoa! So grab them cakes was in reference to what? You're in a you're in a junkyard and you got to don't grab know to cakes this day. The, okay, maybe it's a little tushy squeeze. To this day, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> couldn't tell you. I can't tell you if or how it relates to wrestling. I just know that it is burned in my brain for eternity. <laughs> and when I talk about it, I feel like I'm high because hardly anyone else remembers it ever. <laughs> I guarantee you there will be people writing us right now to be like, oh, I fucking have that song on, <laughs> on a 45 yeah, peeps. on my Master of the Universe record player as we speak. That's the jam. Mm-hmm. Um, there also another iconic moment for me, at least, is uh, when they kind of retire for the eve for the first evening and they're having this chat around the, the fire and they're just having a chat that is so like 12 year old boy. But the line that kills me. I truly cry. I I burst out laughing when I heard it this time too. Is when they say, "Goofy can't be a dog. He wears a hat and drives a car." <laughs> like this is the depth of their conversation. They are figuring it out. This is their like. Yeah. This is their call to action: is to figure out whether or not Goofy is a dog. It's so cute. Oh, it's just that really part. hilarious. And it's also like the thing I love too about this movie, even as a kid, that I really loved is. They bust each other's balls so much, like so many Yo Mama jokes, so many jokes about each other, but it's all done in such a loving way. But it's just a cornerstone of their friendship to like just constantly rib each other. I loved it. And then around this fire, you get to see Gordy telling them a story. And I think it's really cute that they like how Gordy tells stories and how he's a writer and they are already honoring that at their age. Um, And the film is narrated by the adult Gordy, uh, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, And so you get to see that in his life, he does become a writer eventually. Um, at the opening of the film, you get some information translated to you about what happens to a couple of the characters. Um, and the film kind of, the thing that pushes the film off is that um, Gordy is reading the paper and sees that Chris, who became an attorney, uh, was stabbed in a fight. He was trying to break up a fight and he got stabbed in the throat and died instantly. Um, So it sets him on this path to like remembering the story that he's never told. I think it's kind of cool that as a writer, he held something back for so long that was so integral to his his development and to his personality. Um, But he's telling this story. And look, there's a lot of insensitive moments in this movie because it was made in the 80s. The story is insensitive, but the the plot is not. <laughs> so the plot of the story is a revenge story that I just love. And I will not ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. Um, 
But more than anything, I just really enjoy them sitting around a fire, kind of breaking it down and talking to each other about real things. There's a real tender moment the next day when Gordy kind of sees a deer on his own. And, you know, Chris is kind of, I don't, there's just, there's just a lot of it, a lot of really nice, nice tender moments of them talking to each other as well. Because one thing they've noticed and that we've noticed as a viewer throughout is that Teddy kind of has a hair trigger. And so when anyone brings up Teddy's dad, uh, he just goes wild, like yeah. he cannot handle it. Um, but then he also kind of is trying to cultivate a little bit of that madness in himself, which I think like, you know, kind of standing in front of a train and daring it to hit him. And, you know, he kind of tries to cultivate that a little bit. So when Gordy and, and Chris are talking to each other, it seems more grown up to me because they're really yeah. talking about their emotions and the things that are fueling their lives. Um and then you, they're also talking about their friend group and they're talking about this journey that they're on. Um, but I think it was, again, in other hands, I don't know what this movie would have been, but this cast is a big part of why this movie is so, it's such a classic. Oh, my and God. River Phoenix, rest in peace. Oh, it, to me, it's like he, I mean, everything that he, uh, they've said about him as a young actor is so true. He is so mm-hmm. incredible. And it's the thing, too, where when I for obviously when I first saw the movie, I was a young person and I had crushes on everybody. Right. I was like, especially Will Wheaton. I was like, you know, Aww. like I had a huge obsessive crush on Will Wheaton um, when I was a young girl. I think a lot of people did. And the same thing with River Phoenix. I mean, essentially all of them who didn't have a crush on everybody in that cast. I didn't have a crush on Will Wheaton. I did have a crush on Chris. Yeah. And Teddy and Vern. Yeah. Everybody. but. Now, having watched it as an adult, like, you know, as a as a woman who is like of childbearing age or theoretically could have had a child, (laughs) I feel so tenderly for them now in a way that Mm. I never felt before. I mean, I did, but not to this degree. Like I said, um, I feel for them now more in a way that I'm just sort of like I I, they kind of remind me of like who my nephews will eventually be just like these sensitive boys who um, have problems and they want to talk about the problems that they have with their friends and they want their friends to like not, you know, punch them in the shoulder and make fun of them. They want like the actual friend. They want the person yeah. to listen to them. And there's that that scene that you talked about with um, Gordy and Chris like that. I was crying my eyes oh. out. I was a mess. They're around. This is part of the fireside conversation, too, is that like when Teddy and Vern go to sleep. Chris and Gordy have a conversation because Gordy's father has earlier said that he doesn't want Gordy hanging around Chris because he's bad news and he stole the milk money. Right. And then around the fire, you get the other side of that story, which is Chris did steal the milk money because he's, you know, he's a little badass, Mm -hmm. but he brought it back and the teacher didn't give it in. She bought herself a new outfit. Mm -hmm. And so he's now like this town pariah. And he's just crying. And it's so evocative like he really starts weeping about this he's he's revealed a layer of the adult world and it has devastated him yeah and river phoenix my god it's like he is he was truly conveying emotion in that scene like it doesn't feel like a fake kid actor cry it feels like somebody who is way more sensitive and intuitive beyond his years like just right. such a good actor and at such a young age i mean it's just it's it was really incredible it really hit me this time just how talented he was 
but then all of them are they're all talented you know um as children they were incredible actors but i mean that that scene really just wrecked me and i was like Completely. oh my god i uh, these these sweet babies that are you know having Aww. these big feelings and i just i want to hug them all you know I completely agree. And it was they do that like high pitch little kid cry thing where they're talking and, and squeaks and I know. it went right to my heart. And it also reminded me a little bit of the Steve McQueen episode that we did, um, Sexy Living in Midair. Yeah. And how Steve McQueen in his own life talked about how there were so many boys who were pushed aside into these parts of school that were meant for kind of a more remedial life and weren't even given a chance. Yeah. And it just reminded me of how often that happens and how you can condemn someone at childhood, essentially, is what Steve McQueen was saying. And I could see that here. And it just really made me so sad. And like the thing about his character, about the Chris character, is that he you can tell that he had to grow up way faster than he probably should have. Right? right. Because of this idea that his t his family is seen as like the bad family, the the, you know, the the town criminals. Right. Mm hmm. And there's violence. There's violence within the family itself. You know, they talk about it at the beginning when Gordy's kind of going around as the narrator introducing everyone. And it's like, you know, Teddy's dad held his ear to a to a fire and Chris's dad beats him up all the time. Like yeah. there's real violence in their lives. Yeah. And you can tell Chris, even at this young age, he's able to feel protective over his friend's talent. And that's yes. unbelievable. I can't even I can't even imagine I, I, I don't think I would have been that kind of person at that age, to be honest. I don't think I would have felt um, a need to see my friends shine in that way because he's very protective over Gordy's um, ability to be like a great writer. And he's like, I want you to take your college classes. Don't go to shop with us. Like we, mm -hmm. we, you have a talent and I want to nurture that as your friend. I'm just like, holy shit. Like, what an incredible yeah. kid, you know? And he also, I mean, that, that was a moment that made me cry in, in a different way because I yeah. thought, well, he's someone who is now, he's saying to other people what he wishes someone would say to him. Exactly. And then Gordy does. And it's just such a touching and tender moment because he says, like, you could take the college classes too. You could come with me. And Chris is just so dismissive. He's like, nope, nope, we're talking about you. And it is. It's a lot of big emotions for these little guys. Yeah. And, you know, we get some more fun, some more fun in the, in the movie. Uh, we, I cannot, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the leeches scene. Oh, uh, that that scene <laughs> fucked me up so bad as a kid. So bad. <laughs> I, I, I thought every body of water that I entered into, I would come out with leeches. I didn't know what leeches were when yeah. I saw that movie. And after that, I asked questions every day about what leeches were. Like, where are they? What are they up to? What do they want? What do they eat? What the fuck? <laughs> like, how could you not tell me that this lives in our world? <laughs> I know. I had an irrational fear of leeches for years because of this movie. Oh, completely. But it's a, it's a great scene, even now. Like, it's very... It's really funny and it's it's very well done. I will say that. Um, and then there's also kind of a nice I won't give it away. But at the end of the movie, there's another really big emotional beat where Gordy becomes kind of protective of his friends in a specific way when they run into Ace again. And um, when they triumph, he and Chris together kind of defend this group. 
And then he kind of just, you know, he breaks down. He breaks down about how he knows his dad hates him and he's no good. And that just broke me open. And Will Wheaton is such a good crier. He was such a good crier. He probably still is. I mean, he's still alive and kicking. I don't know if he's still crying in public, but. No, I don't think so. He's a good crier. (laughs) He's a good crier. No, a good crier. Um, So, yeah, this movie was just so. It was just great. And again, like thinking about the theme, I think that they this is a group of friends who don't have a lot of secrets between each other. And to have the narration of the movie be something that guides you, you kind of can look back at that time of your life and see in your own life where there was a time when you could just be more open and free with your friends and you weren't yet like inundated by all of these cultural rules. Yeah. And so I just think it's a, it's beautiful. I thought it was a really beautiful movie. Although I will say there's no way Will Wheaton grows up to look like Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> that is some stunt casting that I do not appreciate. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that was a little far-fetched. I agree. And I also found myself asking like, would I show this movie to kids today? And I don't know. I don't yeah. know. There's enough in there that I think they wouldn't be able to conceive of or understand. Um, and I don't know. But I think I'm glad that we got to see it as kids. And I'm even more glad that we could see it as adults and relive it. Yeah. Well. That's our show for the week. That is. Um, just want to remind everybody that if you are interested in our merch, we have T-shirts, pins, mugs, stickers, sweatpants. Um <laughs> joggers yeah they're not joggers or are they they're probably both um they're over at the exactly right shop which is at exactlyrightmedia.com and we also have a bunch of bonus episodes up at stitcher premium so you can use the promo code saw for a free month if you're like you know what i want to hear what these two have to say about their friendship and their lives in a much looser way if you can even believe it could be looser than this how loose can it actually get You have no idea. (laughs) Why don't you give them the films for next week? Oh, it would be my pleasure. Um, So there's no show next week, uh, but there will be a bonus next Thursday on June 3rd. Mm -hmm. So again, promo code SAW if you want to hit that up. But then the following week for our next new episode, you'll be watching Footloose from 1984 and Footloose from 2011. What could it be? What could the theme be? What is it? Is it some esoteric <laughs> thought that we had late at night? It's very the brothers weigh ins, a critical assessment of aesthetic. You should go deep with your thoughts on these themes <laughs> of Footloose and Footloose, which again, what a name for a crime fighting duo. <laughs> uh, that could be us, buddy playing. That's us. <laughs> We're Almonds with a Dash of Sea Salt is our rap duo. Mm-hmm. And Footloose and Footloose is our crime fighting duo name. Love it. As always, it's been a pleasure. Um, really glad to talk about these movies with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Mark one. Mm-hmm. 
This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 